The Guardian. Welcome to The Guardian and Visit London's Pod Tours. These tours are designed to be taken on location as guided walks. They should work in real time, but we've divided them into chapters and there's a map too that you can download so that you don't get out of sync. If you're listening at home, these podcasts should still work as a documentary in their own right. And if that's the case, then sit back and enjoy. We start the coffee tour in Covent Garden in the Marquis of Anglesey pub. Today, it's a gastropub on the corner of Russell Street and Bow Street, but in the late 17th century, it was Will's Coffee House, one of the first places in London to serve coffee. Go in, order yourself a drink and relax as we take you back in time to 1664. Enter, sirs, freely, but if you please, peruse our civil orders, which are these. First, gentry, tradesmen, all are welcome hither, and may without affront sit down together. Preeminence of place none here should mind, but take the next fit seat that he can find. I wasn't convinced by the sermon today, my mind was more on the rebellion. Excuse me, is the seat taken? Sure, sit down. But it's going to get busy in here this evening. It's always like this here in Wills. Sometimes you can't even hear yourself think. Scribblers, hacks, wannabe playwrights, they all swarm here to Wills. Have you read Milton's epic new effort? Of course I have, such a master of the black verse. You know what, though? I think rhyming couplets would improve this. Samuel Pepys, 3rd of February, 1664. In Covent Garden tonight, going to fetch home my wife, I stopped at the great coffee house there, where I never was before, where Dryden the poet, whom I knew at Cambridge, and all the wits of the town, and Harris the player, and Mr. Hool of our college. Such very witty and pleasant discourse. When coffee first arrived here from Turkey in the 1650s, no one could predict what a hit it would be. For Londoners like me, it provided stimulation both of the body and of the mind, and for the Puritan government of the day, it provided a viable alternative to all the alehouses and playhouses that had imprinted this area with such a reputation for decadence. It was so free. Mr. Jackson told a very good story. Samuel Pepys, 2nd of April, 1664. At noon to the coffee house where excellent discourse. One of the company proposed it as a thing that is truly questionable, whether there really be any difference between waking and dreaming. But it is hard not only to tell how we know when we do a thing really, or in a dream, but also to know the difference between the one and the other. So I was talking to Now look over there, to the right, the guy with the grey beard. That's Dryden. Now, he set himself up here in 1688, after he lost his poet laureateship, as a sort of judge, jury and executioner of new writers. And there he sits, like a queen bee with all his admirers swarming around him. I'll tell you what to do with your poem. First things first, make a fair copy. Yes. Take it in your hand. Yes, yes. Then rip it to shreds and sprinkle it confetti-like upon your coffee. Ha! Now, let me treat you all to my latest effort on the occasion of our sacred majesty's coronation thus royal sir to see you landed here was cause enough pass me one of those papers will you 
went to the coffee house, stayed there an hour, looked over many of the examiners. I never met with an author so very bold with truth and so impudently asserting falsehoods in my life. Places like this have always been centres for news. Each new customer is expected to pass on a juicy snippet of news, and ignorance of the affairs of Britain and the wider world can tarnish a man's reputation. The pressure can be enormous. I must say I've been known to make up pieces of news just to please the company. But you've got to be careful, for spies lurk in places like this. Persons are employed, one or two for each paper at so much a week, to haunt coffee houses and thrust themselves into companies where they are not known, or to plant themselves at a convenient distance to overhear what is said in order to pick up matter for the papers. They seize upon a comment, then carry it to their editor, who, like the tiger thirsting for human blood, lies watching for his prey. Time we were off. I need to pay a visit to a new coffee house, Buttons, just opened by the journalist and playwright, Mr Addison. Off to Buttons, are you? Go out the door then, turn right, cross Bow Street, then walk half a minute towards Covent Garden. It's number 10, Russell Street. Can't miss it, it's on the left-hand side. Still serves coffee today. Celebrities keep coffee houses afloat. And Will's Coffee House lost its soul after the death of Dryden in 1702. With its former glory fading fast, it ended up as nothing more than a gambling den. In the clientele of Will's, the great wits of literary London, they all transferred their allegiance here to Buttons. Step this way and take a look through the window into number 10 Russell Street. Can you see Daniel Button, formerly Mr Addison's servant, a gaunt and lanky man, standing at the bar? And the long table in front? That's where the literary stars come to shine each night. Alexander Pope, Jonathan Swift, Sir Richard Steele. But it's more democratic than Will's ever was. Just here on the wall inside, to the left of the door, is a white marble lion's head, designed, they say, by a great hand. In fact, it's a post box. Mr Addison set up this coffee house in 1712 to coincide with the launch of The Guardian, a great literary journal that he published and edited each day. So the lion gobbles up all sorts of materials sent in by the public, and the very best submissions are published each week in a special issue entitled The Roarings of the Lion, roared indeed so loudly the entire kingdom can hear. Dudley Ryder, 17th of August, 1715. Went to Buttons where met with Mr Gore. Inside there was one Mr Bryan, a gentleman that is known for writing several little pieces of poetry in manuscript and political ballads and songs. We were willing to get into his company, so sat at the same table with him, and at last conversation was entered with him. We soon became pretty familiar. Mentioning some verses we heard he had written upon the beautiful women of Richmond, he took them out of his pocket and showed them to us. However, there is very little that is good in them, and I can't think the lion will care for them much. The lion is fed. Onwards to the piazza. Perch a moment, perhaps on that bench over there. Mole King used to work on a fruit and vegetable here in Covent Garden. Now she runs a coffee house in the middle of the piazza. Well, coffee house is a bit rich. Coffee shack would be more accurate. Now where is he? I'll never find it in daylight, but it's round here somewhere. Rather a notorious establishment, Moles, and only open at night. It's really no more than a rendezvous for rakes and whores. In the alleyways, behind the taverns, in front of Inigo Jones's church of St Paul's, everywhere. But especially 
around the theatres. Dudley Ryder, 8th of July, 1715. I was very warm with drinking wine and had a mighty inclination to fill a whore's commodity. Went to the Covent Garden Playhouse. The whores are always in the passage to it and continually lay hold of me. I have not yet got over the surprise it puts me in when they speak to me, though I think of it beforehand. Went to Buttons for coffee to reclaim my senses. The pimps at Moor Kings will listen carefully to your requirements, seek out the woman of your choice, and lead you to the requisite brothel in Bow Street or perhaps Drury Lane. But keep your wits about you. One of Moore's favourite tricks is to pour gin in her customer's coffee and, when they have succumbed to drowsiness, sprinkle little bits of smashed crockery all over the tables. Then they presented me with an extortionate bill for breaking the coffee dishes. Crafty old bat. She has made a fortune out of tricks like that. Went from being a child of the slums to the owner of a grand villa in Hampstead. There's money in coffee. But come, let's leave the market before you fall victim to pickpockets. Let's go via Bedford Street and Garrick Street onto Charing Cross Road and upwards to Soho, where I hear there's a very different coffee culture in full bloom. When you hear that I'm a time, I don't want nobody to moan. All I want my friends to do is give that bell a tone. Well, 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 told the bell easy. Well, 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 told the bell easy. Well, well, told the bell easy. Jesus going to make my dying bed. When you hear that I'm a time, I don't want you to be afraid. All I want my friends to do is take that pillow from underneath my head. Well, 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 told the Ben Easy. Well, 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 told the Ben Easy. Well, well, told the Ben Easy. Jesus, go and make my dying bed. Well, my name's Hilda Sims and I was a habitué of Soho in the 50s. We're in Frith Street, and we're at the Bar Italia, which has been here since the late 40s, I believe. The coffee bar was the place where you could go, sit all day, half night, sometimes all the night, and meet up with people, intellectuals, writers, painters, and so on. It, certainly, if you, were, if you were on your own and you were looking for a bit of excitement or a, an affair or even a husband, you know, it couldn't be a bad thing to go to the coffee bar. Well, in the 1950s in Soho, there was another coffee house craze. There are a number of reasons for this. One of the most important reasons was because uh, teenagers found that they had more surplus wealth than they had before. And they couldn't go to the pub because they wouldn't be served there because they were too young. But they did want to go to somewhere where they could meet other teenagers, where you could meet women. There would be brown sugar in little jars, which was something new then. The coffee, the cappuccino which was totally new, of course, then, you would have in either glass cups or sometimes quite sturdy pot mugs and indoor plants. You might see through, through the window the old buskers giving it a go out in the street, the Alberts or Mac the Shakespearean busker, perhaps. So the ambience was quite pleasant. I go 
mooching round Soho to see if there's folks that I know. Sat in the mandrake or round the French, tuning their wit or their instruments. I like a game of chess or playing my old guitar. I quote Jean-Paul Sartre the rest of the night and fall asleep under the bar. In the 17th and 18th century, coffee tasted like prunes and soot. In the 1950s, it tasted a lot better, but the experience of going to a coffee bar was about a lot more than just coffee. In fact, some people didn't even drink that much of it. And then in 1952, the Gagia espresso machine was introduced to London. And there's a, there's a story behind this. There was a travelling Italian dental salesman called Pino Reservatio, and he travelled up and down the land trying to sell his dental equipment. And he was absolutely horrified by the quality of the coffee that the British were drinking. And he decided to do something about it. So he went down to London and he sold to the Mocha Bar the first Gagia espresso machine. And this triggered a revolution. Espresso bars now, when you went in, the first thing to catch your eye was this huge monster of a thing gleaming on the bars, spluttering and wheezing and coughing out espresso after espresso. You got this kind of steamy noise of the Gagia, this spluttery, steamy noise of the Gagia machine as you wandered through Soho. Here it goes. Very familiar. My name's Antonio Pelledri. I'm third generation of the Pelledri family who now run Bar Italia. Bar Italia was opened in, in the winter of 1949 by my grandparents, Leon Caterina Pelledri. It, it was a celebrity opening day and, and there was a bit of a hullabaloo. And um, they had this extraordinary idea of doing a competition. And the competition was that whoever could drink the most coffee would walk out with a baby gudger coffee machine. Well, a little old lady won it and she walked out with a baby gudgeon machine uh, under her arm. That's the last we ever saw of her. God knows what happened to her. I'm Mark McNellis. I'm a cultural historian, and I teach at Queen Mary University of London. In the 17th and 18th century, the key thing that defined coffee was its association with news and with conversation and with debate. In the 50s, in a way, people are thinking that this is a new space that was defined by a particular kind of social encounter. But the news has changed from being conducted by newspapers and politics to being news about fashion and about style and about music. I mean, I can see myself now, you know. I would probably be wearing low-heeled slip-on shoes, a dirndl skirt, a flared skirt, with a tightly nipped-in waist held in place probably by a large leather belt with a buckle. My hair used to be in a ponytail often would just turn up with my guitar and go down there and I'd see a couple of people I knew and other people would sit down and join in. It was quite gregarious, actually. You wouldn't drink that much of it. I mean, you'd have one coffee and you'd be sat there for hours playing your guitar. And they let you, of course, because it brought the punters in. Famously required almost no skill whatsoever to set up a coffee bar. There's a punch cartoon from the 1950s which says almost everyone's going to be opening a coffee bar soon. The key thing was that espresso and cappuccino were sold comparatively expensively and, in fact, there's very little waste in making them. Within a remarkably short time, like 
four or five years, there were apparently four or five hundred espresso bars in London, which is as, as impressive a rise as you know, the recent rise of Starbucks or branded coffee chains in the last decade or so. All right, I finished my coffee now. We'll go down to Old Compton Street, which is Soho's uh, main artery. So take a left out of the door, walk down Frith Street, then take a right onto Old Compton Street. I'm mooching round Soho to see if there's folks that I know Sat in the mandrake or round the French Tuning their wit or their instruments I like a game of chess Or playing my own guitar I quote Jean-Paul Sartre the rest of the night and fall asleep under the bar. Walking into Old Compton Street for me is a reminder of why I came here, and that was for the music. It was the time when the folk movement, the skiffle movement, and later the rock and roll movement was starting, and Soho was the place where you came to play and to hear music. Soho's my inspiration, it's part of the continent. Croissants and strudels and cool was blue. Foreign newspapers, street walkers too. Everyone knows my name at the pillars of Hercules. And I'll scoff the moussaka and Jimmy the Greeks and take the world just as I please. We're in Old Compton Street, and this is the Algerian coffee stores, which has been here since the 19th century. You can buy every kind of coffee under the sun. Let's look in and see if he'll have a word with us. Okay, this I'm sure has not changed since 1887 when it was when it was started, and it's got all kinds of beans in jars all around the walls. A beautiful old oak counter. Are you actually Algerians or? No, there's no one here Algerian, madam. But the first owner of the shop was an Algerian man called Mr. Hassan. Yeah. So hence the name Algerian Coffee Stores, oh, and it's been going ever since. What do you sell? Give us a few examples. <laughs> You name it, we've got it. Uh, there's everything. Uh, Brazilian coffee, Colombian coffee, uh, coffee blends, flavoured coffees. And can you come in here and buy a coffee to drink over the counter? Yeah, of course you can, madam, yeah. Oh. You can buy an espresso, cappuccino, latte, Americano. I just wanted one final question. What do you think of the gadget machine? Do you sell gadget machines? We don't do them, madam, I'm afraid. We stopped doing them because they've been taken over by Philips. And it's really, really hard to get parts for now. So we, at the moment, we only do like the Mocha Express, the stovetop machines. So yeah, that's it. And I'll just tell you that the tune of that is from an old musical song written about a man who doesn't work for a living and doesn't see the point of it. If he can't have sunshine without any work, he'd rather sleep out in the rain. So I thought it was suitable kind of tune to put to this song about Soho, which was rather what we felt. <laughs> OK, we're just walking on past the Algerian coffee stalls, and on the other side of the road, we're coming up to a place called the Boulevard. But in the 50s, that was the famous 
two eyes. And in fact, a few years ago, they put up a plaque to prove it. And it really was where rock and roll in this country started. I go every night, I make myself some tea. I'm Clem Cattini, I play drums and I was a session man for 23 years. We Willie Harris, one of the British pioneers of the rock and roll era. Well, originally, where we are now, originally was the Two Eyes Coffee Bar. Two Eyes, great atmosphere down there, very small and very cramped and very hot and very sweaty. Remember in those days, in the 60s, after what, 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock at night, you didn't see anybody. And that was a sort of like the uh, meeting place for all the youngsters, oh, have a night out, you know. At the top of the stairs was a guy called Big Roy. And he, was, he must have been about 30 stone, he was massive. Eventually, I got to know Big Roy, so I became like one of the lads there, you know. I got a job doing coffees and cokes downstairs. Being as we were working there, I used to get up and sing numbers with different bands that came down. I think the most that could hear old downstairs would have been about maybe 50 or 60 people, and that's a squeeze. And it got so hot sometimes at night time, and it used to be so much condensation in the room. When I was hitting the drum, I was getting water coming off of it, the sweat. The snare drum just went, it sounded like a pudding because it was soaking wet. That's how intimate things were. It was a place where I could go and play, and that's what we wanted to do, you know, play rock and roll. There's only places we could play it, because, you know, as far as we were concerned, the music business in this country at the time, we were out, outcasts, you know, playing this uh, damned music. So I mean, used to get a lot of people coming, Adam Faith, Tommy Steele, uh, Bruce Welch, that's where I met the Shadows, Bruce Welch and Hank Marvin down there, and played with them, you know. And that's where him and the Shadows got together, which was then the Drifters. One legendary night, a young, gyrating teenager called Harry Webb, later known as Cliff Richard, went down into the Two Eyes coffee bar looking for a band member. In fact, he found two there, Hank Marvin and Bruce Welch, and they went on to form The Drifters, later known as The Shadows, a band which proved a smash hit, captivating the imaginations of teenagers everywhere. So many people getting discovered here. That's what made it famous. Very modern motorbike has just gone past, um, and we're walking to the end of Old Compton Street, and we were just coming to Wardour Street, and we're going to turn right into Wardour Street. Just on my left, you can see the O-Bar, which is where the Roundhouse, the first Skiffle Club, used to be, up on the first floor there. You can see the name in the stone, the Roundhouse. When you hear that I'm a time... We're just passing a little street, a little connecting street called Meard Street. In the 50s, it was the home of two coffee bars stroke clubs, one was the Macabre, the other one was the Mandrake, which 
occupied one cellar and was used for playing chess. It was like a downstairs cellar coffee bar and you played chess down there. We're not going to go there today because we don't have enough time, but just up the road, if you were to take a right into Carlisle Street, then you would find number seven, which was the home of the Partisan, which advertised itself as being an anti-espresso bar. By the mid-1960s, the espresso coffee bar scene had faded. The generation who had found the coffee bars so exciting and innovative in the first place quite simply had got older, had moved on to other places, had grown up, and there wasn't another generation to fill their shoes. You also had the invention of television and instant coffee. So in a world where people could sip their coffee at home and watch television, there was less need and less desire for them to go out So, an era is coming to an end. It's time to move forward in time. And who better to take us there than Blake Pudding from the London Review of Breakfasts? Hi, Blake. Hello. Where are you going to take us? Um, Flat White, 17 Berwick Street. Let's go. Okay. So we've got Berwick Street Market here and uh, nestling behind it is Flat White. Let's go in. It's um, very unassuming. You wouldn't guess they do the best coffee in London. So here we are. So, uh, so Blake, what are you having? Um, I'll have a flat white or a flit white. Okay. New Zealand pronunciation, apparently. Uh, and I'll just get a latte, please. One flat white and one latte, yeah? So, uh, Blake, why don't you pick a table and we can go and sit down? And those listeners who are still with us, order yourself a drink and sit down with us. Blake, tell me about this uh, third wave of coffee houses in London. The so-called third wave of coffee houses, the first wave being Italians in the 50s, second wave being the big chains that we all know, third wave being independent coffee shops set up normally by people from New Zealand or Australia, serving extremely good coffee made by obsessives. I'm Cameron McClure and uh, I came over here about five years ago to come over and bring a flat white to Soho. We're all pretty much coffee geeks, interested in not only the way the coffee's brewed but also new types of brew methods, um, different techniques we can use to make the quality of the coffee finer and more consistent, grinding fresh for every cup, trying to get those aromas from the fresh coffee into the cup and finally tasting that. You know, it's a smell, then it's a flavour coming through that beautiful, sweet acidity of espresso. The signature drink is the flat white. And what's the flat white? The flat white's a really simple kind of drink. A flat white is basically a bit like a latte, but with a lot less milk. Basically, it's in a ratio of milk to espresso. But they also do something special to the milk, which I'm not quite sure how they do it. It's called texturising. I think it's to do with heating it quite slowly and then folding it so it gets air in it and then it forms a sort of fluffy layer that's not as fluffy as a cappuccino and then they make a little pretty pattern on the top. So it's a lot stronger than a latte, it tastes a lot more of coffee and the milk has a delicacy to it. So that is quite obsessive. Uh, what else makes it obsessive? Um, well, they are obsessed with every detail of coffee production. So it'll be buying the right beans, roasting them, making sure they're incredibly fresh, grinding them but not too much 
you haven't even started to make coffee yet. They have these machines that cost £20,000 and they look after them obsessively. Just think of some hell's angel looking after his motorbike. That's the kind of thing that you get. Cool. So we're doing two in-house coffees. One's a flat white, one's a skinny latte. So what we're doing is we're grinding fresh for every cup and we come over to the grinder. This is the grinder which grinds on demand. We adjust the grind to suit our extraction time. See on these corners here we've got little computers and those little computers are called PIDs and that's basically a temperature stability machine. So what now we're going to do, once that's done, we pop them in there and then almost straight away we start extracting our coffee. We're waiting for two coffees, one macchiato and one cappuccino. Here they are. Uh, long macchiato. And a cappuccino. Thank you. I'm used to drinking ordinary coffee and I thought, let's try something different. Never been here before. We like the coffee. We like somewhere you can get a good uh, latte or a flat white and hence the name. We figured this was the right place to come. It's cute and quirky and I guess probably we're Australians so it reminds us of home. We have a lot of this coffee shop culture at home. While our coffee's extracting, we then move on to our milk. And what we're trying to do with our milk is you're stretching out the complex sugars, which are in the lactoses of the milk. And uh, now we deliver these to Jeb. Espresso? Cool. And that white. Thank you very kindly. So, uh, how was it? Uh, very good. How much did it cost? I've got no idea. He bought it. <laughs> Uh, £2.50, I believe. Was it worth that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And how does it compare to other coffee shops in London, like uh, Starbucks? Oh, or... this is one of my favourites. I would never go to Starbucks. Absolutely not. <laughs> this is quite a nice one. So, Blake, do you see this culture lasting, or will it become anodyne and people will get sick of it after a few years? I think the danger is that people will rip off everything apart from the good coffee. So they'll, in fact, I've seen it already. They'll have the decor, they'll offer flat whites, they'll have all the illusions of these obsessive coffee shops, but without the actual really good coffee. And I, that's, I've already started seeing them, and that's the danger. But places like this, I think there's always going to be a demand for them. Coffee houses are mirrors, which in some senses reflect the tastes and mentalities of the age. And we've seen reflected in the 17th and 18th century, a free and open social mentality where it was perfectly acceptable to sit down next to strangers and debate the news or the latest poem. We've seen the desire of the 1950s for the youth of the age to let their hair down and enjoy themselves, a flash of colour after the drabness and austerity of the war years. The 21st century's so-called third wave coffee house movement reflects that we no longer live in a world where the face-to-face -face exchange of ideas is a common part of life. We live in an increasingly virtual world with the internet and television and 24-hour news. And if they reflect anything, it's our almost epicurean desire to consume the finer things in life. And if we briefly cast our eye back across the whole journey, the coffee house has shown a remarkable capacity for reinvention and rebirth. And I'm convinced that the third wave is merely the latest incarnation in a long line of coffee houses. And I, for one, am looking forward to seeing what comes next.